parents had a store uh, and they sold candy, you know, and it was a, a video game uh, store and they sold candy there. And so um, I was able to, you know, get boxes and wholesale, take them onto the bus and sell them. And I'd use those quarters back in my parents' store. They had an, like a Street Fighter uh, arcade machine in there. And I would just dump the quarters right back in there. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey. A show about the pioneers of the cannabis industry, the organizations they're building, and the lives they're changing. These episodes feature the founders themselves sharing their journey and creating the most impactful ideas of the new cannabis industry. Hey everyone, Brian Weber here. Thanks for joining us. Catching the entrepreneurial drive early, Cy Scott's first venture was selling Jolly Ranchers on the school bus back in fifth grade. This funded his love of playing video games at his family store, seeding an early interest in entrepreneurship and technology. In the nascent days of the modern cannabis industry, Cy co-founded cannabis education site Leafly all the way back in 2010. Starting as a side hustle, Cy and his co-founders grew the company to market success and a successful exit in 2015. Cy and fellow Leafly co-founders then moved on to start Headset, an industry-leading cannabis business intelligence provider. Here's his journey. Starting back in 2010, uh, most recently with Headset, market intelligence company for the cannabis industry, really focused on providing the type of analytics that organizations need to make more informed decisions around their businesses. Um, and started in 2010 with the founding of Leafly, and Leafly is a bit more of a consumer internet play. Really, um, our mission with Leafly was to help demystify cannabis, um, really bring cannabis to a more of a mainstream audience. Uh, and in 2010, the world was quite different in this space. You know, it was still um, very early days. I think there was a, a lot of dispensaries. We're in California at the time. A lot of dispensaries started popping up. Uh, we saw a pretty big opportunity um, because there wasn't a lot of good information. Mm -hmm. uh, if you wanted to know about uh, the different strains, um, you'd have to kind of research them on a case-by-case -case basis. Ask a friend. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, we were finding that, you know, different strains had some different effects. Some, you know, made us a bit sleepier, some didn't. And it was pretty interesting. And it was hard to share that type of information. Uh, so we thought, myself and my co-founders, you know, if we were going to go after this space, uh, and try and solve this problem, you know, how could we do something that might resonate with a more mainstream audience? You know, someone that uh, enjoys cannabis as one might enjoy many things like wine yeah. or, or what have you, uh, not something that necessarily just defines them, um, which it's, was often the case at that time. It's really interesting just having, uh, you know, we're going to share your life journey, your founder's journey for two cannabis startups today. Um, and you know, before we get into the nitty gritty of those and the details sure. of those is that a, a thing I want to focus on this show is really what the founder's journey was like for you. And I think we all starting with that, I don't want to go back too far. Um, but you know, our parents and our families are, are what make us who we are, whether we like it or we're not. So I want to roll back, you know, what was your what was your childhood like? Where'd you grow up? What were your folks like brothers and sisters? You know, like, what were some of those big influences on you uh, starting yeah. out? Yeah, um, grew up most of my life in Southern California. Uh, my family's from there. Moved around a bit as a kid, as my dad was in the Air Force, uh, and then moved to airline. Um, but uh, during that time, um, he was always an entrepreneur, so I think I got quite a bit of exposure to that uh, as well, and just kind of learned a bit. I always had, 
uh, businesses going. Um, so that was, I think, kind of the lens that I grew up with. Uh, there's a funny thing about entrepreneurs, and if, if you if you start to ask this, I mean, you're asking this question, obviously, I yeah. tell you yes. Um, and there's often something like some indication that you kind of uh, like get pulled towards it. Um, and everyone has different stories. And I think when I, when I look back, uh, for me, uh, kind of my first real entrepreneurship story was around um, selling, selling candy, essentially Jolly Ranchers mm-hmm. uh, on the school bus. Um, and I started that, I think I was like fifth grade, sixth grade. I do remember that. Yeah, people did that in my, in my school as well. Like there was the candy guy on the bus. And I'm yeah. like, <laughs> so my parents had a store uh, and they sold candy, you know, and it was a, a video game uh, store and they sold candy there. And so um, I was able to, you know, get boxes at wholesale, take them onto the bus and sell them. And I'd use those quarters back in my parents' store. They had an, like a Street Fighter uh, arcade machine in there. And I would just dump the quarters right back in there. Uh, so I wasn't very good at saving. Uh, I was good at making money at the time. I um, but I think that, you know, that just kind of is a common thread uh, when you talk to entrepreneurs. There's always some some trigger uh, yeah. Yeah, that kind of points to that. And I, it was a lot of exposure just to my, my parents' businesses over, over time. Um, and then, so the, I mean, you were in the businesses as well. So it wasn't like you were stuck at a daycare all day long. Like, you know, once you were old enough, like you're there, like that's kind of where they had to keep an eye on you at the business. So that's right. It was almost a daycare. Uh, yeah. would, right. Like, you know, so I'm sure you learned about like taking out the garbage and refilling this, you know, checking the shelves for inventory, you know, doing cycle counts, you know, doing those little tasks around the place to keep yourself busy. Um, you know, while the, while the shop's running. So you had a very good operational start on things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I think, um, you know, from there, I was always pulled towards uh, computers and programming. It was always an interest of mine, kind of hobbyist as a, as a kid. Um, and then I went into uh, computer science as a major um, and I really enjoyed it. And I think that the timing was, was pretty nice with um, just kind of this rise of startups and being able to build stuff, uh, mm-hmm. being able to, to do things that are maybe a bit easier nowadays, um, you know, but getting a website off the ground. It used to uh, not be an easy thing. Now it's yeah, like real, click, 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 and you're, you're, you're going. Yeah, exactly. you actually had to, you had to code it yourself. Right, right. And so um, it was easy easier for me to kind of start startups and just to try things out. Um, what was that time frame was for, 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 for university for you? What was uh, what did that time frame look like? Like 99 uh, to 04. Okay. Uh, so kind of um, right during kind of the rise of, of the internet.com boom and then collapse happened and then kind of coming out of university and uh, kind of seeing the rise of, of web 2.0. Gotcha. Gotcha. Were you a CS major in college? I was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so able to weather weather the the dot com crash, mm-hmm. um, but I remember you know in school uh, I was in an elevator. I remember, randomly remember this, and someone was like, "Do you know how to make websites?" And I was like, "You know, no, I don't." Uh, it's maybe my first or second year, and I was like, "That's probably something we need to learn." Because you're learning a lot of the science and the foundation and stuff. They don't really teach you like trade type work. The practical, yeah, yeah. It's more of the and, theory. Exactly, more of the theory, and so that really kind of pushed me into that. Uh, and it's great. And so you could get a lot of a lot of projects off the ground. My first startups uh, were really around mobile, uh, mobile gaming. Uh, so pre iPhone days. So like, were you on like the 
Palm Pilot, or did you make the Nokia Snake game? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I did not. Make it, but I played quite a bit of it. Uh, but but we were doing games for Nokia, for Sony Ericsson, uh, Motorola, uh, like the Razer phone. That's where I started. Um, so was that know, was that while you were in university though? Like you were like programming for them, uh, like as side gigs, or was that was that after you uh, left? Uh, it was shortly after I left. Um, so my first startup was actually, yeah, in the mobile gaming space in, in based in Beijing, actually. Okay. Uh, so my co-founder, um, you know, had uh, good connections out there and uh, we really wanted to like capture that, that population. There was no um, app stores, really. The app stores were all driven by uh, the mobile carriers like China mm-hmm. Mobile, China Unicom. Uh, so we went out there and, and did that for a couple of years. Um, I think that looking back now, I mean, the China market is, is hard. Yeah. Uh, it's a hard market uh, to do a startup in, especially being an expat, uh, even though, you know, my co-founder uh, was connected. Uh, he was an American, um, but had a lot of family and, and things like that. It was just tough. Uh, and I think that that's been proven by, you know, the flight of Google and Facebook over the years, you know, they where just stayed away. They just stayed away. Uh, so we learned that lesson pretty early on. Uh, but it was great. It was a great way to learn a lot. You're going to take lessons away from all those different things. Now, this, the co-founders that you had, were those, was that Scott and Brian as well? Uh, no, no. Okay. This was pre-Scott and Brian. Although okay. I knew Scott. So Scott and Brian are my co-founders with Headset. and yeah. Leaf. Um, and I knew Scott in college, actually, we'd met at school. Um, so he's also a computer science major, uh, and he's currently CTO of Headset. Um, yep. You know, you mentioned you had a co-founder um, for f- for this, you know, for your data, uh, for the games company, and you've had co-founders throughout for your other startups in the cannabis space. Um, what had prompted you to, to always be more collaborative of a, of a founder um, in that? Was that something from your childhood? Were there some you know, experiences that you had with that or... Um, I think it was it was really around. It's just hard. It's a hard thing to do on your own. Um, you, you'll if you you know you read a lot of startup literature, and it's always recommended to have a co-founder um, for for a variety of reasons. But I think the biggest reason is that it's it's just challenging, and it's it can be quite um, quite a roller coaster, as they say, uh, quite lonely um, when you're you know doing something that's different than other people. Uh, you might feel a little crazy, mm-hmm. uh, like with Leafly, we felt we felt pretty crazy for a while. Um, you know, it, it's like there's this um, kind of uh, the the trough of sorrow, you know, on the graph, right? Where it's like, oh, this is great. Uh, this there's really something here. And then you start. We started to go out to fundraise for Leafly, and we got a lot of pushback, you know, because people would say, you know, mostly angel investors, like we we love what you're doing. Uh, the metrics look good, but we don't know if this is really a, a thing that's going to be a long-term uh, business uh, as far as like the cannabis space. And you start to feel like a little crazy, like maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. So when did you have that spark moment for, for Leafly? Yeah. Um, well, the uh, the first idea like came from uh, Scott actually had the idea and he wanted to, he was actually tracking uh, his consumption um, with a spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> Ge- geeks and, of smoke, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was like, you know, there, there should really be a, a place uh, where people can go and do this and share this information out with others. So, you know, you don't have to figure it all out yourself and, and track all your own usage. Um, and at the same time, um, it, it feels so long ago, uh, but Yelp was really emerging uh, as a new kind of um, new force in the in the internet space, you know, where people could go and share restaurant reviews, you know, and Yelp has since expanded. And, and you see a lot of this now in like Google Maps and, and elsewhere, but it was pretty early days for that idea. 
Uh, so that was really kind of where, where the spark uh, occurred. I thought it was crazy. Um, you know, I enjoy cannabis, but I enjoy, like, like I mentioned, I enjoy a lot of things. Yeah. Um, we don't need, but, we don't need to get deep on these things. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so I, uh, I thought, uh, well, if we're going to do something in this space, then let's, let's build something that I would like to, I would feel, com- feel comfortable using, you know, something that's targeting the stoner stereotype, which was so common at that mm-hmm. point. Um, and that really became kind of the impetus for, for Leafly and kind of our approach. Uh, so we went with this periodic table of element look for those that, you know, may or may not be familiar with the brand, but it was a way to kind of, um, to kind of have a, a system for, for coding, uh, these different strains. Cause there's, you know, when we, when we launched Leafly, we launched like hundred, 150 strains, you know, mm-hmm. now there's, you know, thousands on, on the platform. Um, and that's a lot of information for people to digest. And it was really hard to like, how do you, how do you bring that all together? Like what's uh, a paradigm that people can adapt to and kind of get it. And even a periodic table, why was that paradigm chosen? Cause it was just a way to organize things. Cause I'm sure if you're a designer, they might be thinking of like, oh, here's a color palette and here's right. different things in different sides of the color. Like what was the conversation around choosing that as a paradigm to get people into this? Yeah. Well, uh, it, it's funny. It was, it was, pretty accidental. Uh, I think the real problem was there wasn't a good way to have uh, a lot of imagery around the different strains. And even if we had access to a lot of imagery of the strains, uh, it's really hard to differentiate at times. You know, uh, cannabis is pretty unique. Uh, It's very susceptible to like grow conditions and and things like that. And so, um, you know, one person's photo of Blue Dream could be very different than another person's photo of Blue Dream. You know, not to mention, you know, is it really Blue Dream kind of questions at the time. Um, before a lot of you know testing and, and, and sequencing, um, so so it was really driven by we need some sort of visual uh, to associate with these strains, and so um, an abstraction in the in the periodic table made sense. And Brian, uh, my other co-founder, is our uh, chief design officer with Headset, and he's uh, you know always lived in the design world, and he selected kind of the color palette for Leafly, which is kind of this green, uh, kind of a reddish color uh, and purple. And, and he chose those colors because those are really predominant in the cannabis flowers. So you mm-hmm. see a lot of those colors come through. Uh, and they became very iconic, um, you know, where you see them in, in usage all over the place now when people talk about hybrid indica sativa. Even though in more recent days, you know, Leafly has since moved kind of on to a different way of, of uh, classifying this stuff for a good reason. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the indica sativa hybrid stuff, while it's easy to kind of wrap your head around, I don't think it's always so accurate. You know, there are sativas that make people sleepier, uh, indicas that don't, and, and so on. So Leafly's doing a good job of kind of getting in front of that. Uh, a lot of dispensaries were using it at the time and kind of classifying them that way. So we just used the language at the time, gave it some visual uh, look, and gave it a platform where people could share uh, this information with others. Um, we so, uh, yeah, what was that? What was that initial look like? Like, when did you and um uh, and, and Scott and Brian get together and I'm like, okay, guys, like, we're going to do this. Like, we're going to, you know, I'm, I'm leaving the mobile games. Um, let's, let's get into this. What did that initial few days look like, uh, for you guys? Yeah. Yeah. We were actually all working together at that point. Um, I, I left the, the game startup, um, and I went over to Kelly blue book, which was where Scott was. So kbb.com. Um, and, uh, you know, on the engineering team moved into the product management team, uh, Brian was on the design team. And so, uh, a lot of it was nights and weekends, yep. um, you know, where we just uh, would get together on a Saturday and Sunday and just kind of, uh, hack away at this stuff was really kind of where it started, uh, to get moving. 
Yeah, definitely all bootstrapped. Um, you know, no no venture capital, no investment, kind of our own money. Uh, and you could do it pretty lean and mean, uh, given, you know, we could build this stuff, we could design this stuff, uh, had experience and product. So really knowing kind of, you know, what we need to be building and how to measure that stuff. So we kind of had uh, the core of what you need to get that minimum viable product off the ground without having to really spend too much money. It was really more of just, uh, just time. Sweat time equity. Yeah. So what, what did that MVP look like? Yeah, uh, pretty rough. It's funny. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I think it, you know, maybe I'm just cr- overly critical of it. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to forget what the world looked like in 2010 versus what it looks like today. Because uh, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. But when you see it on like the Wayback Machine, if you look up Leafly, <laughs> it's pretty simple. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty plain. Um, not much to it. It was only strains uh, and only uh, the 100 or so strains that we launched with. Um, and that, that was pretty much it and a way for people to create uh, accounts and review strains. We didn't even uh, require email addresses uh, in the beginning. Uh, we also didn't show photos explicitly. You had to toggle it on. Um, Except for bandwidth? Like you didn't want to no, like... No, no, it was, it was for... Um, just kind of like a safe for work mode, we called it. Uh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, because it was so, uh, such a, like a sensitive taboo topic at the time. Uh, and, you know, it still can be. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, we had all that. So that's all in that, that original version. We didn't ask for email addresses because we didn't want to have a way, uh, to, you know, we, didn't, we want people to feel comfortable about sharing their consumption. Um, and so we thought, well, if we put an, you know, required email address and verify it, you know, it's a little too identifiable. So we had more anonymous accounts, you know, all that stuff is, that makes sense. That that makes a lot of sense. So what did that look like? Who were some of your first users on this? What was your kind of like your, your revenue model for this? Cause obviously you have server hosting, you guys have dev time on this. What was some of the initial revenue streams for this for you? And obviously this is more of a consumer focusing market. Yeah. Early on, um, we were like essentially pre-revenue really not focused on revenue really building the audience um you know it's it's kind of that that whole um um cold start problem uh mm-hmm. or the chicken and the egg problem right you can't you can't uh monetize without the user base you know we, we couldn't get content without people coming in people wouldn't come in without content you know so it's kind of uh you know getting over that hurdle of I'm sure you could find volunteers to write some reviews, <laughs> guys. We need some we need some product research. We need you guys That's to write about it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, we did, and we did a lot of the reviews on our own uh, in the beginning. I mean, someone, it's uh, a tough job. Someone's got to do it, right? <laughs> Taking right. one for the team there. Uh, yeah. So, so that was kind of the beginning uh, days, and then um, yeah, we wanted to move to kind of a dispensary listing model uh, as the as the revenue model uh, at the time. Um, so, so kind of our approach was to go strain first, uh, you know, help people understand and, and navigate that world, and then uh, eventually connect the dots between, you know, strains that you might be interested in, in trying uh, and places to go find uh, those, those strains. Um, and so later on, we rolled out uh, like a dispensary and, and retail finder uh, service that that's how we then monetized as basically listing fees. So you'd pay a premium to be listed above other retailers. So if someone did find, you know, that they wanted to try a Blue Dream, you could go and see the shops that, that might carry. W- was there like an integration with their POS that would say if they had availabil- availability of that strain or not and like some kind of matching system that would go on with that? Yeah, there, there wasn't in the in the beginning uh, and we really pushed a lot of that early on and that kind of is um, a good like 
segue into our current business and how we, yep. we got to where we're at, but, but it definitely didn't exist with Leafly. Um, but we were getting a lot of feedback from our dispensaries. You know, they, they moved through strains pretty quickly. Um, and it was, it was a real burden for them to be manually updating their menu, oh. uh, in the system and just staying ahead of it. And it's a, it's a poor customer experience when someone goes to Leafly and they see something at a store and then they go to the store and it's gone. Um, and maybe the store just didn't get a chance to update it. You know, the consumer, you know, could blame us, could blame the dispensary. So we want to create a way to automate that. And that started um, the point of sale integrations that we were doing with Leafly. And there were a handful of, of POS companies uh, that provided uh, or started to provide kind of a menu uh, service. So we got there eventually. That started in what, 2010, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Okay, so what were some of those initial challenges that you guys were, were really facing? Yeah, it uh, the biggest challenge was, was fundraising and financing it. Um, you know, I think at the time we had great metrics. I think if we were in any other vertical, kind of given the, the consumer adoption we were seeing, uh, the, the revenue growth we were seeing, um, you know, pretty straightforward funding um, scenario where you, you could get angel investors to come in and say, okay, let's, let's put some, you know, pour some fuel on this fire and see what happens here. Uh, but uh, it really was pretty limited just because it was so early um, in the space. It was medical only. There was no adult use at the time. Um, so that was probably the hardest thing, right? So we had to keep bootstrapping it and it, it became tougher and tougher as it started to scale up and, and gain popularity. We still had our day jobs, but it was this kind of limbo. You didn't have enough revenue or funding to actually leave your day jobs, but like you're at work trying to do your work, you know, keeping the used car market in, in, in right. known value. And then you're like trying to juggle this as well and be good stewards of your own company. Exactly. Uh, and, and on both sides, you know, not letting it bleed into the day job. Um, but that started getting harder with customers. Uh, yep. So we knew like something had to give. Uh, we either had to kind of push it, push it off or find fundraising or find an acquire. So what happened then? What was that? What was the answer to that first, uh, yeah, uh, we, we found an acquirer. So at the same time, um, Privateer Holdings uh, came into existence. Um, three founders there, uh, you know, Brendan, Brendan Kennedy, uh, Christian Grow, Michael Blue. Um, Privateer Holdings now uh, is essentially Tilray. If you follow mm -hmm. the news, uh, Tilray is a Canadian uh, licensed producer. Uh, that's another company that they created while we were under their umbrella. Um, but Privateer was just starting. Uh, you know, they they kind of had the same vision uh, that we had that this is going to be a mainstream uh, consumer good. Uh, it needs tools and services, uh, brands that that target that audience. Um, and at the same time, uh, there weren't a lot of, of organizations like Leafly out there. Uh, so it's kind of a good a good matchup uh, for us. So we ended up selling to Privateer, uh, and we stuck around with those guys for you know three four years after the acquisition. Really continuing to build Leafly up and being able to focus on it. Were you able to, uh, through that acquisition, were you able to leave your day jobs and like just focus full time within the, the business at that point? Exactly. And that was okay. a big driver. Uh, that was a you know big part of the decision. Okay. Okay. Well, that's amazing. I mean, like to be able to, to exit uh, so quickly and so early and just to be on there, that had to be a huge confidence boost to all of you that like, hey, we're doing something right. Yeah, it, it was great. And it, it really gave us uh, the room to focus on the brand and, and build it up and um, you know, get it in a good, good place over the, the following years there and just, okay. yeah, focus. And, they, and at that time, uh, the industry really started uh, blowing up. Um, that's, you know, 2012, um, you know, started seeing legalization in Colorado and Washington get voted in. Mm -hmm. um, and so, 
it all started really ramping at that point. So going on from there, you guys have been working in the business for a number of years uh, at Leafly. Um, where does the idea for headset come from? Sure. Um, so with Privateer, you know, we had, we had best our options, met our outs, uh, and really, you know, kind of being entrepreneurs, uh, we're looking for the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted to stay in the cannabis space. Uh, you know, we saw still so much work to be done and, and, and so much opportunity uh, to be had. Um, and we started really thinking about where that might be. Uh, and it was really the, the motivation to start headset was driven by, I think kind of two, two factors, you know, one, um, you know, that thesis that cannabis will eventually be just a consumer good, um, or a consumer packaged good or fast moving consumer good, like, like many other, um, consumer goods. And, uh, to the operators that were producing products, you know, really started to get more sophisticated, you know, and in the early days of Leafly, it was, it was pretty much the flower product in a jar from an unknown vendor may or may not be tested, um, you know, loosely regulated. Uh, and then you started to see this trend of, you know, branded pro- uh, products coming to market, you know, packaged goods like edibles, vapor pens, um, pre-rolls even, um, starting to happen. Uh, and you started seeing more competition at retail. It used to be, you could produce a product, you could bring it to retail and, and sell it. You get guaranteed shelf space, right? They're starved for, for products to carry. Uh, and then, you know, that, that started changing, you know, more brands coming to market, um, and more competition to get that shelf space. Uh, so you really had to position your brand, uh, accordingly. So, uh, we saw kind of those, you know, those two trends happening, uh, camps continue to be more consumer goods and some more sophisticated operators and brands appearing and uh, thought, you know, like any kind of industry, you know, people need data to drive decisions. And it, it really wasn't um, so much the case early on because you could just sell whatever you could produce. But that, that world um, was changing quickly. Mm-hmm. And we thought, uh, you know, there was an opportunity to address that. Where did this spark come from? Like, obviously, you guys are seeing the, the larger trends of all this stuff going on. But like, you guys out to dinner one night, we're sitting around the office, Friday beers. Yeah, it was, it was, I don't, I don't know exactly. I think we had, we had kind of decided it was, it was time to leave, um, okay. privateer. And I'm sure it was in one of our, our meetings after that. Um, yeah. we spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, once we had left kind of in between jobs, so to speak, and really kind of thought, okay, what, what could we do? You know, one of the things was, you know, continuing to stay on the consumer side, but then we thought, you know, we wanted to leave that for Leafly and not, you know, end up in any way competing with Leafly. Uh, so we thought, you know, it's time to move more to the B2B side, which is, you know, essentially what an analytics play in the space is. So, um, yeah, just a lot of conversation and just kind of settling and, and thinking this is the, the biggest opportunity. Okay. So you guys left actually Leafly before starting this up. Was there a period of wait that you guys had to fulfill as far as the contract goes or? Yeah. I mean, we had a, um, an, um, option vesting plan essentially. Yep. So we wanted to get through that. Um, and also we wanted to find some good leadership to kind of come in and, and, and fill the, the gap. Um, you know, so it wouldn't be so disruptive uh, to the organization. Okay. Uh, and that, that took some time to find the right, right person. We actually went through one, didn't work out, found another um, that was much better. And, and once we brought him in, uh, came in as the CEO, uh, we left a few weeks later because okay. <laughs> we, were, we were really ready. Um, 
and uh, please work out please work out (laughs) yeah (laughs) i can imagine that's stressful but you know it's also good for the company that you built and obviously you know you want to make sure that that thrives you know after you guys have left so um so time frame for this you know what was that first line of code what was the mvp meeting what was that spark meeting that you guys had for headset that you guys really just started okay we're we're all systems go on this what did that look like for you guys and about what time what year was this uh, so this is 2015. Um, and so with, with headset being an analytics play, really wanted to focus on um, what was happening at retail or, or just at the dispensaries. Uh, we thought in, and still continue to believe that that is the, the richest form of data. Uh, everything, if you think about it, you know, from the time you get a license, the time you plant that first uh, seed to the time you put it in a packaged good, uh, it eventually ends up at retail and it ends up getting sold, right? So we wanted to see kind of what what was happening there because that's kind of the end point for everything um and so it's basically a demand analysis of like regardless of what you make this is what people are buying right now exactly exactly uh, you know this is the competitive landscape this is where opportunity is all of those things and so we really needed uh, retail cooperators uh to start uh, the business because without uh, retail cooperators you know we had no source of data uh to to get that kind of information um, you know, you could you could do things like consumer surveys or even consumer panels uh, to to try and build some of that, but we didn't think it would be you know, wholly representative. I think that that shows a, a good slice of of what um, what market data. Looks you wanted like. actual you wanted actual data, not kind of anecdotal, if you will, data. Right, right. Because there's you know, yeah, yeah, qualitative. Um, there's. When, when you self-report, you know, you can misrepresent, you could forget things like, oh, yeah, I did go to the store last week, or I, I did add this to my cart. Um, and so we thought, you know, best source would be just working with retailers directly. So that's where we started um, with our focus was, mm-hmm. okay, if we need to work with retailers, um, what kind of things can we provide retailers uh, so that in exchange we could ac- get access to that data and use it in aggregate and anonymize it and uh, project out from our retail sample to a broader market um, measurement. And so that's where we started. Uh, so the first first few lines of code were probably uh, around the point of sale integrations mm-hmm. um, and, and going deeper than what we were able to do with Leafly. So Leafly has a great sense of inventory, uh, like in stock, out of stock, uh, but we needed more than that. Um, we needed transaction records and and uh, you know, wholesale manifest, things like that, uh, to really provide the kind of uh, data that we uh, have with headsets. So that's pretty much where it started, uh, kind of on the back end. And then on the front end, uh, really, like what, what kind of tools can we provide retailers uh, that will give them some value? And, and we really wanted to focus on business intelligence. Uh, business intelligence is basically kind of looking at your own data, gaining insights from your own data, uh, where market intelligence is kind of looking at the broader market and gaining insights from, from what's going on in the market. So for the retailers, uh, focus on BI uh, seemed to make the most sense because you didn't need a, a market data play. Uh, again, that cold start problem, you know, you, you need a bunch of retailers on the platform uh, to provide the market data, but retailers don't want to come onto the platform unless there's market data. So it's the, the chicken of the yeah. egg. So with BI... Um, you could get, you know, some, provide some value, certainly. So that was your initial MVP, like, let's get the integrations in here, let's get some BI reporting up front for them. And we'll throw, you know, we'll, 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 we'll throw this and see if it works. Was there an initial, were there a few POSs that you worked with, and at least initially, that were, were game to play with you? Yeah, yeah. And some that we still work with uh, today. Um, like, uh, Green Bits is a great example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were getting a lot of traction. We're, we're now based in Seattle. Um, we moved up here after the acquisition of Leafly. Um, 
And GreenBits in the Washington market uh, was getting a lot of retail adoption uh, at that time and still does uh, today. Um, and so they were a great uh, first partner and we worked okay. closely with them at Leafly. Um, so that's a, a good example of one uh, that, you know, was early on. Uh, now we, we've integrated about 20 point of sale okay. partners um, in both the U.S. and Canada. Um, so continue to expand that. Now, I can imagine I had um, actually did a recording with um, Socrates, who's the CEO of, uh, of Jane Technologies yesterday. And one of their big early decisions that I've, uh, I think really transformed their company was that they had standardized data sets that the retailers would then map to. So they could have consistency amongst their data and not have to do scrubbing post, you know, all that data getting in there. Right. How did you guys solve that problem? Yeah, it's a it's a hard problem, and it's definitely one that um, you know we set out early on uh, to figure out. I think we underestimated the the number of SKUs and products that would be in the market at this point, uh, as I'm sure probably Socrates did as well. Um, but it is, uh, you know, from their position, um, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, for what's going on at, at retail and it, and as a consumer, you know, you want to be able to find like a specific product. Uh, much like Leafly did with with strains, um, but yeah, normalizing the data is is what's required, right? So uh, we do have a product database uh, of all canonical products that are sold in any market that we track, uh, and we map back uh, from what we see at retail uh, to that database. So you know we leverage a lot of machine learning uh, to be able to do that with some automation, and we have you know some human support to kind of validate certain things um, like new products in particular. Um, you know, that might not have a lot of training data. Uh, so it's a, you know, continuous um, uh, thing that we're always, you know, aware of. When we go to a new market, it's all a whole set of new brands, uh, new license holders, and you have to kind of build out the system. There's a lot that we can build on top of, uh, but certainly, you know, you're building out that database of products and you're, you're getting that product information from the product manufacturers themselves, you know, from what you're seeing in the point of sale and so on. But it's a, it's a hard problem. And when you look... Um, you know, at services um, like Jane, you see like a lot of duplication and things like that because it's so fragmented. Um, but it is something that, uh, you know, we put a lot of uh, resources towards. Uh, early on, you know, there's there a lot of talk like, oh, we need some standardization, you know, you need UPC. And you, you do see UPC usage in, in certain markets and, uh, you know, places like Canada, but it's not like fully adopted. And even with UPC, it can be challenging. Um, and we, we know this because we, we have a partner in, in Nielsen, which is a leading market intelligence firm in the world. And, and they deal with a lot of UPC-based products, but they still have product coding and product normalization um, challenges and efforts that they have to apply as well. Big problem. So those are some tech problems. Um, you know, you've had two co-founders throughout all these businesses. What were some of the things that you guys had to go through and learn together as a team? And to be able to go through one startup and move into another startup and still want to work together and, and, and still find that to be productive and successful? Yeah, um, with my co-founders in particular, I think it's it was really around just kind of understanding our strengths and weaknesses, um, you know, where we're good and where we're not good. Um, and I think after working together um, for over 10 years, you know, we've got a good sense of that uh, at this point. Um, and the other challenge is that companies change significantly over over their life cycle. You know, when when we started Leafly, it was three of us. When we started Headset, it was three of us. You know, um, when we left Leafly, it was about 50, 60. I think, you know, they're well over 150 at this point. Um, and, you know, with Headset, we're about 50 uh, today. 
Um, and so just kind of growing um, in our roles as the different stages of the company uh, grow. You know, there's a point where, you know, everyone's reporting to me as CEO. And then there's a certain point where I, I can't have everyone report to me. Yeah. Um, and, you got to have and, filters at that point. Exactly. And that transition and, and navigating that, um, you know, and, and kind of s- switching modes, you know, from building to managing um, you know, that's, I think some of the, the more challenging aspects, you just really have to be flexible. Um, but startups kind of build that muscle memory anyways, you know, being flexible to whatever dynamic. Was it easier the second time around? Cause obviously, I mean, there is a certain scalability and a certain pattern to scale through, through the businesses and they're both tech companies and obviously some, some different kind of challenges on there. Were there some similarities that helped you the, the second time around with, with headset that you, you know, you didn't make those same mistakes the first time around that you oh, did the yeah. first time I'll- around? For sure, for sure. There's you're always learning. Um, when I look back to that that first startup uh, in mobile games, there's like if I have a time machine, there's so many things I would have done uh, better. Um, and same thing with Leafly. Um, and I'm sure I'll say that about headset at one point, right? Yeah. Whatever the next one is, and you look back and you're like, I can't believe it. after three, I still did this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it's I I can't really think of a good single example, but it's just like constant. Just so many. You just learn a lot and mm-hmm. uh, things that are that are agonizing decisions that are difficult maybe early on become easier because you have a framework for them uh, and you have, you've lived through it um, and you've learned, you know, through some of the, those challenging times. Um, So yeah, definitely. I feel, I feel more and more capable, but always, you know, uh, always navigating whatever new, new challenge. And and, and permission to make mistakes as well. You're like, okay, I'm still, I I might be a veteran founder, but I'm still a founder and we're going to figure this stuff out as we go on. So uh, that kind of leads me to some of my next questions. You know, we're recording this on on March 20th, 2020 right now. Uh, Things are getting a little weird, but, you know, assuming, you know, everything kind of writes its rails and we get over this bit of a hump right here, where do you see the cannabis industry within the next year? Um, it's, it's definitely optimistic. Um, you know, I think last year, kind of the tail end of last year and early this year, um, you're seeing a lot of the capital market challenges happening. I think there was, uh, particularly with the Canadian, um, you know, LPs or anybody publicly traded, really a lot of overvaluation, um, you know, that irrational exuberance, uh, kind of the, the dot-com parallel. So with, with cannabis, you know, we, we definitely have some good tailwinds, you know, versus maybe other verticals. Uh, and one of them is market expansion. You know, you mentioned you're in New Jersey, you know, and yep. you miss, uh, a legal market there on the rec side, adult use, you know, happening soon. And so as that stuff happens, you know, there's an, a natural uh, a growth and, and that those tailwinds that are advantageous. And I think that with um, the public companies, uh, and that exuberance, I think people maybe overestimated kind of that that growth, kind of how how big Canada might be, uh, how fast the international markets will open up, and and things are going quickly. You know, when I look back at 2010, I don't think I would have thought we'd be in this world, yeah, uh, in the world at at that point. Um, but you know, once you're in it, you want it all to go faster, at least federal in the U.S. here. What are some of the the data that you're seeing, uh, and not just micro, like within the past week or so, but what are some of the trends that you're you're seeing uh, at, at current? Yeah, um, great growth. I mean, stuff is selling. Uh, yeah. That's the thing, right? It's um, you know when you look at the capital markets and you, you see some of those graphs and you know going down into the right, um, 
you, you might think, well, is that what sales look like? Um, but sales are the opposite of that, right? They keep climbing. Um, in a market like Canada, uh, you know, when you look at like a province like Ontario, and Ontario has about 45% of the Canadian population, uh, and they have like 24 stores, maybe it's a handful more because they're just starting to roll out licenses um, pretty consistently, finally. Um, but that's that's crazy. Uh, when you think about, you know, access uh to cannabis for the most populous province. Uh, and then you compare that to Alberta, which has got about 400. And I think Alberta is like, you know, 15, 20% of the Canadian population. Um, and so, you know, that as you see these licenses come out and you see stores opening up in Ontario or see things kind of normalizing in California, um, you know, you, you do see continued growth. So it's, the data is good. You're seeing brands winning, um, you know, you are seeing, you know, brands that might be struggling or getting kind of boxed out, but that's just, that's going to be the nature of it. It's my long way of saying like very optimistic for the next 12 months. Um, you know, the world we're in today, March 20th or 19th year. 19th, yeah. Yeah. Um, we are, uh, you know, dealing with this, uh, you know, pandemic that is global. Um, and there are issues with, you know, shelter in place in certain markets. Like just yesterday, uh, the Bay Area, um, you know, reopened cannabis uh, dispensaries and, and retail uh, after closing them as non-essential services. Uh, the industry kind of rallied around it um, and, and opened it up because there's a lot of medical consumption that still happens, uh, but not a lot of medical uh, license holders. They're just purchasing at, at adult use. Like in Washington State here, um, there is really not much of a medical program you know everything is just sold at, at retailers so uh you're seeing that uh so i think that's going to slow a little bit of growth until this thing kind of works itself out we are seeing some positive developments internationally in, in asia where you know it's slowing down yeah uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel uh and everyone's, long looking, for, everyone's looking for any kind of light please <laughs> exactly um but I, I think you know without this happening um we probably would have seen some good recovery um you know, in the capital markets, I think in the middle of the year, towards the back half of the year, uh, you know, that, that could still be the case just to how fast uh, or how much of an impact this has, how much of a, if we are in a recession, um, you know, how, what that kind of impact has. Uh, but as I say, in a recession, people still buy uh, things like alcohol and, and cannabis. So yep. hopefully it won't impact us. A few closing questions I have for you. Like as a person looking at yourself back, you know, 15 years ago, when you started some of your entrepreneurial journeys, um, you got a time machine. You going to go back in time? What are a few things that you would say to yourself from a big macro picture of like focus on these things and these other little details probably didn't really matter all that much. Maybe less focus on the small stuff, uh, or thinking the small stuff is so dire and drastic. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'd have a lot more hair uh, today if I didn't <laughs> worry about it back then, um, or less gray hair, anyways. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So a lot of that, I think a focus on the, the bigger picture um, is always important. Uh, yeah, I think thinking big is, especially in the startup world, especially if you're venture backed, um, mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's a very, very important thing. Uh, a lot of things in the early days seemed um, like they'd be great, but you don't really, I didn't really spend enough time thinking about how big of an opportunity could this be? It was just a, oh, this would be a cool thing to build and solve this problem. But like how big of a problem is it really? Um, or a focus on, uh, you know, used to, I used to be a bit more like solution trying to find a problem. Like, oh, this is really cool tech. How can I apply this to something? And like, you know, really trying to 
find something and then and then you do and it's just like oh, it doesn't really work because you're kind of making up the problem to fit the solution um and so those are things that uh i think i wasted a lot of cycles on with with you know i'm sure with leafly i'm sure early days of headset um i'm sure maybe even today yeah it's <laughs> time machine to come back someone future sigh would tell me as much um but i've got a lot better at it uh, a lot better at kind of trying to see the big picture um you know, just looking more for the problems first and then trying to find solutions that would fit those problems versus uh, vice versa. That makes a lot of sense. Um, where do you get your, where do you get your news? Like, who do you listening to? What is, what have you blocked out as noise and, and what signals do you let in to, to your, to your head and to your team? Yeah. Um, for the cannabis space specifically, um, you know, like MJ Business has always been a great um, resource uh, over the years. You know, they were pretty early on uh, out there kind of reporting on this. But I feel like now, you know, it's, it's really broadened as well. Like you're getting good coverage from Business Insider and Market Watch and Vice, you, know, you name it. Um, Leafly still does a fantastic job of reporting on, on some very interesting topics. So still uh, checking in on that quite a bit. Um, you know, in social media, uh, there's a lot of great people to follow on, on Twitter. Um, I'm less active as a contributor, um, you know, more of a, a consumer of, uh, of Twitter and, and frankly, in social media in general, I try like to not get too distracted because I find myself easily distracted with that. And then you go to a wormhole and you're like, you look up and you're like, there was an hour I could have done so many other things with. <laughs> exactly. It's a great way to, uh, procrastinate. Yeah, at it definitely time. is. <laughs> what are some of the people that you follow on Twitter? Oh boy. Uh, a lot of, I mean, a lot of like startup, um, startup people, not just cannabis specifically. Um, you know, the usual suspects, uh, like Naval or, or Hunter walk, you know, people that really cover startups broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that's what I used like Twitter for mostly. Gotcha. Um, and then just kind of broader cannabis news, more of the, the industry publications. Just a, more of an aggregator for you and uh, pop in, pop out, set your time limit, 30 minutes in and out. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to do it sometimes. You got to maintain focus. That's always the hardest part of an entrepreneur is where to put your time because everyone is demanding it, uh, sometimes passively, sometimes actively. So uh, where to put that time. But I really super appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. I'm glad we're put using our our, our uh, work from home time to the the most benefit. But um, I, I really appreciate you sharing the story of all the startups that you've been through uh, and some of the lessons that you've learned from this. And I hope uh, there's some takeaway for, for some of our audience. Yeah. And thanks for having me, Brian. It was uh, really great. And uh, I, yeah, hopefully it's valuable for, for your listeners here. Thank you for listening to Lit Up, a founder's journey. Links from today's episode are available in our show notes. If you received any value from today's episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. You can connect with us on social media at Lit Up Founders or email us at feedback at litupmedia.com. I'm your host, Brian Weber. Thanks for sharing the journey.